Now, I can't help but be reminded of the, the beauty of how we have our kids in here for the first part of the service. And, you know, it can be a distraction. It can be kind of nerve-wracking to some parents. Uh, but as we read it just in Deuteronomy, how we're supposed to teach our kids the, the truth of who God is. And also you get this moments of stuff like um, my daughter apparently is turning Pentecostal and is dancing in the aisles um, and stuff like that. So that's always good. Nothing against Pentecostals, but, you know, it's just fun. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we can gather together as your people and sit under your word, sing songs to you and pray to you and just focus our minds and our hearts on who you are, our hope, our God who loves us. Lord, we all come bringing our lives, the good things, the bad things from this week and, and from this month into this service with us. And why they don't go away, Lord, I just pray that we can now see the truth of who you are and how that covers them all with a peace and a comfort that cannot be defined by this world. And as we learn about you, we can see your love. And as we see your call for us to be your people and to live as you have called us to live, that we can see that being powered and founded on the gospel, that you have first changed us to be able to live for you because of how you have saved us. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Integrity. Integrity actually can now become a buzzword. It, uh, it seems like it's everywhere, this integrity. People want to describe them, uh, themselves on job applications of having integrity. Businesses want to say they are a business with, of integrity, and sometimes it becomes just a catch-all phrase meaning good or honest. But integrity actually has a different meaning, or actually I would argue a, a deeper meaning than that. It's talking about how someone is the same they are out in public as they are in private, that they're the same all the way through. The integrity uh, comes from this Latin root, integris, which carries that meaning of soundness or wholeness. In their stories and accounts that the Roman army actually would use this word integris on a daily basis, that the Roman commander would inspect the troops, and as he was walking along the lines, the Roman soldier would slap his chest and, and yell out, integris. And the Roman commander was actually looking for the soundness of voice and the, and the sound of uh, hitting the armor of a well-kept armor, and, and kind of the appearance would go with the reality, and he would know this person was ready for battle, this person was ready for what they were going to be commanded because they are what they appeared to be. And Christians are actually called to have integrity as well. They are called to have that soundness or that wholeness as well. That how we proclaim or what we teach or what we say we believe actually filters through all of who we are and all of who we are is going to be influenced by that, impacted by it, and changed by that. And we've seen through going through Titus, that's actually been one of the main themes of this book, is that Christians are not just called to believe certain things, but they're all called to believe things in a way that changes how they live, that our life and our profession of faith cannot be disjointed from each other, but they should be united in wholeness. We see that again in Titus chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And if not, it's going to be on the screen. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're just going to read the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2. And this is Paul again writing to his pro se Titus, his uh, fellow worker, and he says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good and to so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior." When I read that passage and when I was studying that passage, how would I summarize what Paul is trying to teach Titus and teach the church and teach us? Is I would say this, sound doctrine echoes through the community. The idea here is that sound doctrine, right believing, it changes how people live and then people see how that lives and now it resounds, it echoes through the community as people respond to it and they cannot fault what someone believes or how they're living in response to their faith. That sound doctrine echoes through the community. That we, we see the fact that the gospel does not just stay an intellectual, even just a, how we feel about Jesus, but actually changes how we live and who we are to our deepest being. That we have that integrity, that what we're proclaiming is the exact same thing of what we're living and how we're, we're operating in this world, because that sound doctrine then now is seen in the life of the people. Sound doctrine echoes through the community. And this is what Paul is teaching Titus here as he says, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. He starts with this phrase, but as for you. As we remember from last week, if you remember from last week, we were just read a little bit above in, in Titus 1, we saw how these false teachers were coming in and they were teaching things contrary to the truth of who Christ was or who God was. And now Paul is saying, but as for you, you have a different mission. You're supposed to teach what is true. You're supposed to teach what accords with sound doctrine. I love that phrase, with accords with a sound doctrine. Actually, if we remember from the very first week of our Titus series, it sounds very familiar. There's a link back with verse 1 when he's talking about the whole mission or the purpose of this letter, and he says that he's, he's writing this letter for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with whole godliness. So you got that same word, accords, this fitting with. And now he's telling Titus, hey, we're supposed to, you're supposed to teach that which is fitting that goes along with, that which accords with sound doctrine. That you're not just supposed to teach these, these truths of who Christ is and who God is, but you teach how they're lived out. You teach how they have impact on your life and how they change your life. It's a funny thing about Bible headings. In most of our Bibles, if you read this, we see right above this, it says, teach sound doctrine. I think that's kind of funny because I love, I like Bible headings are usually good, but we've got to remember they're not from the original um, text. And these are, these are people who put these in afterwards, the, the people who translate. And so when we can read the Bible heading, we think, oh, this is supposed to work, work. Titus is supposed to teach these truths, and that's it. But it kind of misses, I think, the point of this 
this passage is not so much teach the truths of who God is, but teach how those truths of Jesus Christ, the gospel, saturate a believer and change them to the very core. That they're supposed to teach that which accords, that's what goes along with sound doctrine. Not just this truth, but also how it affects us and impacts the believer and how it changes them from the inside out. I think that helps us because so often when people think about theology or, or this word doctrine of belief or teaching sound doctrine, they, maybe they think it's boring or just for those intellectuals or it's that dry people who are going to be locked up in a library somewhere. But when you read this passage, you see, no, this is practical. It's relevant. It's, it's, it's proclaiming this truth that what we believe about God actually changes who we are and how we operate in this world. That Titus, commanded by Paul, here was actually supposed to do an apprenticeship of the faith with the people of Crete. That was not just head learning, but they were supposed to get active and actually live out the faith. You know, I'm not, I'm not against head learning. I love head learning. I, I spent way too much money, or my parents helped spend some, too much money providing head learning. But there's, a, there's relevance in actually living out or doing, putting your hands on and learning through doing. I remember one of my first jobs was, was working on rental houses and fixing them up. And my brother and I would, would be basically say, hey, go do that. And we'd be like, I don't know how to do that. And they're like, figure it out. And there was great value in doing that. Usually he figured it out more and I just followed along and handed him tools. But it's still that fact of there's great value in putting your hands to the task after you're living out something you know to do. And that is what Paul is urging Titus to do. Mentor these people, these Christians in Crete, as they apply their faith to their life. Apprentice them in what the faith looks like lived out. And then he goes on to how it's applied. The bulk of this passage is almost just a list of how Paul now separates the congregation into old and young, male and female, and says this is how it should look. This is how the faith is applied to these different people. And so we can read these and see and be encouraged and actually be motivated that this is how we're supposed to live out our faith. And so he starts, he says, older men are to be sober-minded, meaning they're supposed to be level-headed. They're supposed to actually apply the Scripture in such a way that they make decisions based on the truth of who God is. They're not going to be moved by the circumstances of life and what happened, but they're sober-minded. They keep a level-headed on themselves as they look at life as God defines it. They're supposed to be dignified. They're worthy of respect. These are men that are going to be leading the church in many um, circumstances, and so they're supposed to be dignified, worthy of respect. That You look at them and say, that is how someone who believes and has confidence in Christ lives, and so they're dignified. They're supposed to be self-controlled. It's interesting because every single category, you could argue, carries that element of self-control. It's probably the key to the whole passage. That Christians, because they know who Christ is and how it is changing them and how the gospel impacts their life, that they're no longer centered on themselves and feeding their appetite, but they can actually control themselves. They can put off their desires for right now for the greater good. They can, they can look to what is important and, and, and be self-controlled in all things. And the Bible talks about people who follow God should be self-controlled. They should be able to not be given to their base urges and how they, they might want to live. 
That Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is, is like a, broken, uh, a city broken into and left without walls. They're defenseless. They're going to be ruled by the circumstances of what's around them. They have nothing to protect them. You can think about 2 Timothy 1, 7, when, when Paul is talking to Timothy and says, for God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and self-control. That all Christians are supposed to have this, this quality or and practice this quality given by the Spirit as we walk in faith in God that we can control who we are and follow Him. But all men are also supposed to call to be sound in faith, indicating they're supposed to have a confidence and trust in God that can be seen in their life. They're sound in this. People can see it in their life. Not only are they sound in faith, but they're sound in love. They're loving people who care for people. And they're sound in steadfastness. They're patient. Not only patient, but also consistent. Following God and all those things. You can add that up, and that seems like a daunting list, but you actually even can compare it to the, the list of qualifications for leaders of the church, and they seem similar. This, this argument that Christians are changed, that we actually are changed as we know who God is, and He's working in our lives. The gospel changes us. And these older men were supposed to be that example for the church that they can look at and want to follow as they see the gospel impacting and changing this life. Then Paul moves on, older women. Older women are supposed to be reverent, that their life is supposed to be marked by holiness, that they're looking towards the things of God. They're not supposed to slander they shouldn't be speaking slander. They shouldn't be speaking ill of people. And so you got the positive of that. They're not only speak, not slandering, but they're speaking truth. They shouldn't be spreading lies, but they're actually speaking truth of who God is and the truth into people's lives. They're not supposed to be slaves to much wine. Again, this argument for self-control. They're supposed to be able to control themselves and not give in to those temptations and be slaves to it, be beholden to it. And then they're supposed to be teachers. Older women are supposed to teach younger women the truth of how the gospel and God impacts their lives. You know, this passage right there, actually that verse right there, Titus 2.2, is kind of the foundation of so many women's ministries that older women are supposed to be teaching younger women the truth of the gospel and how it impacts their life and that this is the truth of how the church works. And we actually, I would say we can expand it. That older people, older people walking in the faith are supposed to be teaching younger people in the faith. That we model for each other and we grow together as a community of the faith. That so much of our Christian community now is siloed. We silo people into different age brackets. Some people silo them into, and when they go into small groups, they're kind of siloed and they only get that one perspective from that same kind of age group. But this is an argument, I would say, for the community of faith living together. That people who have walked with the Lord longer have value to speak into the younger Christians in their lives. That no matter where you are in your, your age bracket or in your stage of life, you have value as we speak truth to each other and grow together. That we're supposed to be training each other for godliness. But then Paul continues with these kind of um, bold lists of qualities that he should be teaching that accords with sound doctrine. And he gets to younger women, and this is, was probably the passage that a lot of people's hackles raised when we read this, because it says, talking about younger women, they're supposed to love their husbands and wives. 
There's no problem there. Yeah, we're supposed to be taught how, younger women are supposed to be taught how to love their families well. And that's good. No one would argue about that. They're supposed to be self-controlled. Again, everyone's supposed to, again, be self-controlled as we live life in light of the gospel. They're supposed to be pure, indicating a holiness again, living towards God. And then we see working at home, and people go, what? in our state and society. And so you look at that, and it's easy that we read this, working at home, and we read back into Paul's text our modern issues. And so we read that, and some people take that and say, oh, this means women should be in the home, and they shouldn't be out in the workforce. But I would argue that's not actually what Paul is saying, because that's not an issue that Paul was dealing with. Paul was not dealing with the working class woman going out and finding a job where that did not exist in his society. So we have to look actually what was Paul talking about when he's saying working at home. And what he's saying is that the first priority of a mom, of a wife, is to take care of the household. And it's not some some demeaning position, but actually is a a, a position of providence, of of prominence, I should say. It's It's a position of importance as they manage the household well. And that even in smaller households, these households weren't just a family, but they were a larger unit, usually including servants. And, and so the wife was supposed to manage that well. And you can almost even think back to Proverbs 31 about what a godly woman looks like, a godly wife looks like, and as someone who's managing the, the state, basically, of the family well. And so it's, so not, it's not so much the negative of don't work outside of the home, but it's more of the positive that your priority should be your family. And so that does have relevance to our day. That is, and I would say, if a woman who was married and had kids and is reading that, but has been putting their job first or been putting pursuit of gain of something else first above her family, above the household, then this speaks to that. That's not how God had ordered the family to work. But it's also true for a man if they were putting pursuit of something else before the household or before the family as well. And they should be called back to love their family first and foremost. But a younger woman is supposed to be kind and is supposed to be submissive to their own husband. And again, that can rub us not in modern ears the wrong way, but it's a common teaching throughout the New Testament of how God has ordered the family. And that in that order... He has given us, we respect that, and we operate that. And it doesn't mean women are less than, again, it's, it's not to all men, it's to their own husbands that they are submissive, meaning that the husband is given the responsibility to love sacrificially their family, to lay down their life for the family, and the woman supports them in that. And the wife supports them in that and encourages them in that and helps them in that and follows their leading as the husband is the spiritual leader of the home. And again, we see that throughout Scripture, like in Ephesians 5, about how God has ordered this as a picture of love towards one another, as the picture that actually ultimately points to Christ. But Paul continues, not just with younger men, but also younger men are supposed to be self-controlled. And then he switches right to ties himself and probably leaders in general. He says, you're supposed to be modeling good works that you lead by example. That people who wish to lead should be leading by example that they first and foremost look into who they are and start living out the faith in those ways. And they should be teaching in such a way that people 
that they're taking it seriously and people see that. That they're, uh, they're sound in speech and that they're teaching, they show integrity and dignity, that they're teaching something that's not contrary to how they operate in the world. They're teaching something that goes right along with who they are. And it reminds me of, of James uh, 3.1 about how teachers, people should not be eager to be teachers because they're going to be judged more harshly or at a higher standard. And this is what Paul is saying, that they need to show integrity in all that they do. And then finally, he moves on to slaves or servants, bond servants. And he says, these servants, bond servants, should be submissive to their masters. That those who have been rightly put in charge of them, uh, they should follow. They should be the model worker. They should not be argumentative. They're not talking back to their masters. And in this context, as you kind of vision, these are, these are servants who are Christians, who might have Christian masters, and so they shouldn't be arguing with them. They shouldn't take liberties on the brotherhood of Christ, but they actually should be model servants, model uh, workers, uh, seeking to... Uh, please their masters as well as they're pleasing God in all they do. Now all they do is well-pleasing, that they have a spirit of wanting to serve and do well. And they don't steal. They don't take liberties again and think they can pilfer from their masters, but they don't steal. But in all, they show good faith. That means people actually can see their faith lived out. That's a whole lot of list of qualities that we just shotgun through. And it can be overwhelming. We see these qualities. But overall, the, the emphasis here is that there should be this integrity in the Christian's life. No matter what position you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what your position in the world, there's an integrity that people can see. There's an integrity that people can notice when they see your life and they see your profession of faith and they line up together. That actually is a, a testimony to the gospel, that the gospel that Jesus Christ has saved us, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did and how he took our sin upon the cross, how he lived perfectly for us, and now how we can, through his death and life and resurrection, stand before a holy God justified, that has an effect. That changes us. We don't just keep it in our minds, we don't just keep it in our hearts, but it saturates our very being, and now we live differently. We live differently, and as we love people, we serve people, we don't think of ourselves first, we control ourselves all for the glory of of God. That when he's reading now and listing these qualities, he's emphasizing there should be an integrity in the faith. That there's a mark of being part of God's family. And people start to see that in your life. You know, families start to look alike. Maybe they started to look alike, but they, you know, there's those characteristics of family that people can see stuff in them. Sometimes people see resemblance in siblings that siblings don't see in themselves. I remember way back when, I think I was in high school, we were, we were going to a, uh, a get-together, and my dad and I were walking down the street, and our friends saw us from far away, and they knew we were who we are because they could tell us from our walk. Is apparently, Karius have a distinctive walk. It's probably the walk of we're busy getting somewhere, don't get in our way kind of walk. And so they could see that, and it's that mark of being part of a family. And it's the same way with Christianity, that when we're ushered into the family of God, we now start to produce and carry the marks of God's family, and that is a life of integrity lived before God. And people notice it and can see it. 
Because when you see this list spread throughout there, Paul is giving the reason why this is important. We see in verse 5, when, he's, <clears throat> when he says that the Word of God may not be reviled. We see in verse 8, when he, when he uh, says, so that the opponent may, not, may be put to shame, not having, e- having nothing evil to say about us. We see again at the end of verse 10, when it says that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We see these phrases saying this is the purpose of living with integrity, living out your faith, is that people see it. The purpose is that people see it and it speaks to them. That the Word of God might not be reviled. The fact that they cannot malign the Word of God, that when people see a Christian living according to the Word, they see, hey, I can't say anything bad about the Word of God. The Word of God is true, and we can see it played out in their life, that we cannot somehow weasel in and say, well, they're not living out, they're showing the lack of power. No, the Word of God has power, and we, we testify to that when we live um, in uh, a life of integrity. That. The opponent has nothing to say bad about us. They're put to shame because they cannot criticize us for our belief or how we live. That they might not believe the same things we believe, but they can't say that we don't believe them. I'm reminded of a, of a story of Ben Franklin way back, back in the day when Ben Franklin lived. Uh, there was a great uh, a preacher, George Whitfield. And he traveled around. He did open-air preaching. And people came by the thousands to hear him. And Ben Franklin, who was not a Christian, was heading to listen to George Whitfield. And he helped publish a lot of his materials. And he helped them get like uh, uh, preaching gigs. And people asked him, hey, Ben, you don't believe what he believes. Why are you doing that? He goes, yes, I don't. But he does. And that he was drawn in because he could know, he knew Whitfield and he knew what he proclaimed was what he lived and he saw this man pouring out his heart for the truth of God and he was attracted to it. That's the testimony of someone's life when we live in line with the word of God. People see it and they cannot say anything against us. And then again, we can adorn ourselves with the gospel and people see it. Verse 10 talks about how that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's an interesting phrase, adorn, that they may decorate, embellish. They emphasize the doctrine of God. That by living truly to what God says they should, how they should live, they actually show the value, the importance, and actually show the beauty of it. That they point to the truth of who God is and how they live, and that should be the same for us. What this is talking about is the value of a testimony. A testimony of how our life has been changed because of Christ. A testimony that we speak to people, not only our unique story, but the truth of the gospel and how it it changes us. And we see that throughout the whole Bible, that when people come to know God, when they see God and are reorienting their life because of God, they are changed and they want to speak that truth. We see it all the way back in the Psalms. Psalm 107.2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you're redeemed, you should be proclaiming it, but not just proclaiming of words, but in how you live and how you order your life. We see it with the woman on the well. She meets Jesus, and what does she do? She runs back 
to the village and tells them about it. And immediately her life has changed because she's given a new purpose. We see with the more man more born blind who's healed by Jesus, and he's telling people about this, and he, he has a change, and his change speaks volumes for the whole world. And what does he say? One thing I know, that I was blind, but now I see. They can see the change in his life, and he points to that fact. I have been changed. Again and again, we see that importance of a testimony of how God has changed us. One of my favorites comes from Acts chapter 4. When Peter and John are uh, hauled before the authorities, the ruling council, and it's this great phrase in, in chapter 4, verses 13, the council is talking about the council says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That people actually could see their life, and because of their boldness, and, and, who, and, and, and boldness in proclaiming the gospel, they could see that they had been with Jesus. They were changed because of that. And then Peter even talks about how we should have that as well in our lives when he says in 1 Peter 3.16 that in your heart you set apart uh, Lord, Christ as Lord in your life, but then in, be ready to give a reason for that hope that you have to anyone who would question it. That people actually see in your life a hope. They see in your life a difference because if you know Christ and you're ready to give them that reason that actually your life goes out before you and people see you and they recognize something is different about you and then you're ready to preach the word and proclaim the truth of who Christ is because of that difference. The German uh, pastor, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief. As Christians, as we walk through this world, as we live for God, imperfectly, covered by grace, stumbling and failing, but as we live for Him, non-believers should look at you and say, there's got to be something to that. There's got to be something to their faith. And that is the call for all of us that we let our life be a testimony to everyone who can see, everyone who hears, making opportunities for us to share the story of Jesus Christ so that people may know him and respond to him, which means that we have to live a life according to the truth. You know, Hamlet said, to be or not to be, that is the question, talking about whether it was worthy to keep on living or not. I think the question for us who believe in Jesus Christ is to be a Christian, to live like a Christian or not. We all face that road. Is it, is it worthy to actually march to the different beat of the Bible and God and so now separated from the world that people will see that in a lot of cases recognize it and in a lot of cases not in a pleasant way? Is it worthy to do that or are we going to blend in? Are we going to say, no, I'm, I can profess what I believe in my mind or in my family or my home, but when I go out, I'll just follow suit. I'll go with the flow. I'll, I'll march along with them. The question is at hand, are we going 
going to be believers who actually believe the gospel enough that it changes how we live. No matter the result, no matter what comes our way, we believe in Christ, and so we follow suit with all of who we are, not just our tongue, not just our praises on a, on a Sunday morning, but with all of our life and we seek to live for Him. That changes how we do business, that changes how we treat people, that changes how we love our neighbors, and it changes and people see that, and that sound doctrine will echo through the community. People will see that, and they cannot fault what you believe. They'll see that, and they'll see the integrity that comes with a life lived for Christ. And the great thing is because we believe in grace, they'll see you fail, and they'll see you mess up, and that's good, and they'll see you know that it's not about how well you do this, it's not how well you can act, it's not how well you can get your life together, but you're still covered by grace, and so you're still accepted, and you get back up, and through the power of God can live for Him. And they'll see that testimony to the great gospel that we believe, and they'll want to know what is that about. And they'll be drawn into your truth, and we can proclaim who Christ is to all who know us and see us. And we're called to live differently. Whether it's as aliens and strangers as land, or it's not conforming to this world, but be transforming by the Bible, again and again we're called to live for Christ, putting his priorities above all else. That we live for God and as people of God, following him. And when we do, we proclaim the truth of who Christ is day by day and the impact the gospel has in our life. Pastor Alistair Begg says, the world is watching to see whether Christians are really different or not. And I think that's true in so many aspects, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. People would probably know what you believe, and they're watching to see if you truly are following Christ and believe what you proclaim or not. I think it's an urge for us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, submitting to the, the Word, that we start to align all of who we are with what God has given us. And we can be God's people in every circumstance. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can read it, that we can process it, that we can know who you are through it. But also that we can know how to respond with our lives. That we know that you are moving powerfully in us and that you can transform us and that you give us the power to live for you. That we trust in you to be empowering us to make these changes in our life if they need to be made. That we seek you and that we seek to live a life of integrity, lived out for you in all circumstances as we seek to honor you in all that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.